This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. This is our first event um, in conjunction with our One Book, One College um, program that is focused on George Orwell's 1984. This is a... uh, event sponsored by the library and by the uh, college bookstore. I do want to remind everyone you can check out the book if you haven't read it here in the library. And the bookstore has a table set up back over there. We're, uh, they're selling copies at a pretty reasonable rate. So um, when you're done, please help yourself if you'd like some. Um, let's see. Let me introduce our panel, and then we'll get started. Um, directly to my left is um, Mr. Ricky Cobb, who's an instructor of sociology. Next, we have Mary Fee Fleece, who's an instructor of history and our director of global education. Uh, next, we have Nancy Morrissey, who's an instructor of information management systems. Uh, to her left is, is Jason King, who's an instructor of developmental math and general smart guy about everything. So we had to have him on the panel. And to his left is Carrie Millsap Spears, who's an instructor of literature. And she uh, and has some fans in the audience. Carrie actually did her master's thesis on uh, George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farms. She has uh, excellent perspective to bring uh, on this title. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. I'm going to try to moderate this contentious group. And I will also take questions. If you have a question you want to ask the panel, try to make a signal to me. And I'll try to come out and get to you so that uh, everyone can hear you. I'll use this microphone. So with that, um, I'm going to ask Carrie to give an intro of the text. Tell us a little bit, a nice overview of this book, because there may be some members of our audience who haven't read the book, or at least haven't finished the book, and then we'll begin our discussion. Go ahead. And Barb, can we get the lights? Thank you. I find it a little ironic to use a um, piece of commercialism to talk about this this book, but I think that a lot of people into into my age group especially actually saw this um, commercial aired during the Super Bowl in 1984, and um, it was quite a fascinating thing at the time, and it only aired once. Um, you can find it online. Just Google 1984 Apple commercial, and it will come up. It's number one on the list. Um, so I want to just kind of bring that to you in the discussion because it is really, really important to kind of see the visualization, I think, of this of this piece. Um, 
it's hard for us to imagine a world where conformity and totalitarianism reign because we have never ever experienced that but in this novel that's exactly what happens um, I did my work actually on the ideas of language as it relates to the characters in the novel um, my, my thesis was the characters could not understand what was going on around them because their language had been corrupted and tainted and they lived in this language of the slogan um, we can also relate to that in the sort of sound bites we see at the bottom of the CNN screen, things that fit in very small bites. Um, in 1984, there are three main slogans. Um, War is peace. Freedom is slavery. And I forgot the third one. Ignorance is, ignorance is truth. Uh, and it's strength. And in Animal Farm, they actually had a list of seven commandments that they were to live by. By the end of the novel, all of the commandments were changed, and only the creatures who could read understood that they had been changed. Everyone else had been duped. So in 1984, the idea of writing and reading is really, really important. Basically, the story is about a man, Winston Smith, a sort of everyman character, travels through his day in his daily life and what happens to him. He decides that maybe this isn't the world that he wants to be a part of anymore and he thinks about change and he thinks about what he can do and he starts to keep a journal. He starts to write down his thoughts and that's what gets him in trouble with the thought police. That's why we have these signs that say thought criminal around campus. That's what's relating to the thought police trying to control what people think um, and how they act. He is pretty much um, pegged as a thought criminal very, very early on in the novel, and then we just kind of see it unravel. After he gets involved with Julia, um, he falls in love with her. He starts um, acting out of the norm for his um, society. He gets caught, ends up in the, the ministry of love, and is tortured until he loves Big Brother at the end of the novel and every ounce of his um, personality is changed he no longer wants to write he no longer wants to keep his journal he no longer wants to act inappropriately as um, outlined by his government and his society and he is sort of one he says he w wins the victory over himself at the end is the last line of this novel this is not an easy novel to read it's actually a very frightening novel um, one thing a reviewer said of the novel when it first came out from the New Yorker, stating 1984 is a profound, terrifying, and wholly fascinating book. The struggle of Orwell's hero to retain the barest individuality in an ignorant, belligerent world escorts us dramatically from our own day to the fate which may be ours in the future. This is what was written about the book when it came out in 1949. Um, Orwell began the book in 1948, thus... 1984. He just inverted the numbers. He wrote the book while on his deathbed, literally. It was the last thing that he wrote. Um, he struggled um, with tuberculosis and actually war injuries because he participated in the Spanish Civil War. Um, he wasn't Spanish. He was British. I don't know why he was there other than he wanted to be part of something. He really, really wanted to be part of, of a revolution and a revolt. And then he realized it wasn't what he thought it was. And that really um, created an interesting picture for him in his life. But that's pretty much a brief overview of the book and Orwell. Um, okay, thank you. Do we need the lights back? Yes, Mark, we can get the lights back. Uh, our, our overall theme today is after 60 years of, of living with this book, why does this book matter? Does it matter to us today? How do we interpret it today and what do we take from it? And I think probably the place to start, and I'll throw this out to the panel, is with the idea of Big Brother. 
Um, there's few books, things like Frankenstein or maybe even Moby Dick, um, come to mind where a character or an idea lives beyond the book, where people use the word big brother in our society all the time, but many of us have never read this book. So I'll throw out what is big brother in the book and how do we talk about big brother in our society now? Well, I'll start. Um, can you hear me? All right. Big Brother to me. Well, my I'll ask. I'll ask a question in in reply. Is Big Brother a person, or is Big Brother some governmental organization? So that's where I'll throw that out to the panel or anybody who wants to chime in. Um, to me, when I read the book, I, I read it almost as an allegory for the Soviet Union and the Soviet experience. And when I even read about Big Brother, the, the picture that I got in my mind was of Joseph Stalin. Interestingly enough, the words Big Brother for kind of the, the combination of the fascist and communist experience, often the names took specific places. Um, Der Fuhrer, for example, Hitler just... It means something like the boss. Um, Franco, who was the, the dictator of Spain, took El Jefe. And in the Soviet Union, it took Veliki Vosht, or great leader. And so Big Brother, to me, seems almost like a natural extension of this thought of naming the great leader for whom you're supposed to work and do your deeds for. That's, that's kind of how I thought of it, I guess. El Duce. El Duce, yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't think in the final analysis it really matters whether Big Brother is a person or if Big Brother is a symbol being used by an organization of individuals. I think the bottom line is the mind control, the attempt at mind control that's going on. Uh, we, we live in a country today where it's difficult to know uh, how much of our foreign policy is actually crafted by our president and how much of it is crafted by uh, the people around him. And that holds true with, with any presidential administration. I don't necessarily mean that as a slam on the president. Uh, but what we're talking about in this book, I think in some ways, um, is something you find in every society, within every form of government. Uh, Big Brother, though, just takes uh, this idea towards sort of to the logical extreme, I would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also an image. I think I, I'm a literature person. I deal in images and symbols and all that stuff. And I think it's an image of totalitarianism, especially in this book. You, you can't turn a page without seeing. There was a picture of Big Brother staring at Winston. I mean, it's on every page, and it's almost like um, it's forcing this sort of reality through imagery. Mm -hmm. Well, I would pick up on Jason's comment about um, it being an allegory for the USSR. I spent a month in Russia this past um, summer in June of 2006, and it was, as I was reading this novel, I kept thinking of Russia the entire time because there are so many correlations um, in so many ways. Well, probably one of the first things I, I wrote down was um, when Winston's job working for the Ministry of Truth is basically to rewrite history. Um, and you saw that quite a bit that occur that's still occurring today, uh, not just in, in Russia, but it's also occurring in China. Um, the, I, there was just an article that my students were talking about in my last class from the International Herald Tribune, how in China they are currently rewriting history to exclude talk of, of Mao Zedong and, and the revolution of 1949 that made China a communist country, um, and they're focusing much more on China's economic development. 
a similar thing is happening in Russia today. Uh, the current president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, has recently declared that history should be positive. And so when they're talking about, um, I asked, um, we, we visited a gulag camp, which is a Soviet concentration camp, where any, any dissenters from the Soviet Union, you could be arrested for jaywalking and be thrown into a concentration camp, a gulag camp. They said at one time, one in six people in Russia was in a gulag camp, spent time in a gulag camp. Um, and so the, um, the idea of rewriting history about the gulag camps today, Putin has said that history should be positive, so they're now excluding that information from the history textbooks. And people are receiving less and less information. So definitely the idea of mind control, controlling what people get. How do you find out about your past? Well, you read the history. Well, if the history is being rewritten, how are you going to know about your, the, the actions of your nation and, and what direction you're headed in, in the future? So that's, that's really the, the first thing that, that stuck out at me about this novel. You know, I've got to ask the question, though. Um, with a few exceptions, most of us in this room probably are not Russian. Mm-hmm. But this term, Big Brother, is, is on the covers of our magazines. Mm-hmm. We hear it. So let's bring this to the United States. Why do we care? Great about Russia. But so what? Why does this matter to us? Well, I think we can relate it to um, cameras and things being around. If you go out anywhere. I went to Applebee's at the corner of my street this weekend, and there is a camera outside Applebee's. So anybody wants to know that I went there? I'm on tape. <laughs> and I can add on that, in my Internet Technologies class, we go out and look at these webcams. So if, if you've walked anywhere in Chicago, you've been on camera. If you've driven on any expressway mm-hmm. in Chicago, you have been on a camera. Um, is that an invasion of your privacy? That's a big question in a lot of people's minds. Um, another one is the um, cameras now that... You can actually get a traffic ticket if you go through an intersection and the light was not yellow. You can get a traffic ticket in the mail a couple weeks later saying you violated um, the traffic law. You know, you get a traffic ticket. And this actually happened to a friend of mine. Then you go out on the Internet and you can see the pictures they took of your vehicle. Uh, You know, is that a good use of technology? I'd be curious. How many of you own an iPass? for your cars a lot of you do those of you that don't can I ask is there anybody that wants to is there anybody that just does not have one deliberately because they're trying to they don't want big brother to know where they're going or where they're driving or is it because you just don't drive on 294 very often Jason I know you're one even if you don't have an iPad and foil hat on my head yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't hear what I'm thinking okay. well even if you don't have an iPad they still know the the, um, the Illinois Tol- Tollway Authority or whoever is doing the state police still know if even if you don't have one because they can take a picture of your license whenever you go right through because every lane now is an iPass lane, so you you your um, movements are tracked. They're now saying that they are going to start issuing tickets based on how long it's taken you from get to get from one um, um, what, what am I looking for toll booth thank you to another. So if you go through the the one right over here the 88 toll plaza or 86 toll plaza, whatever it is, and then you go to the next one by, by Hinsdale and Oak Brook, they could see how long it took you. If, you. if you got there in like two minutes because you were driving 100 miles an hour, then clearly you were speeding and you can get a ticket. So I'd like to hear perhaps from some of you what you feel about that, if you feel that's truly an invasion of your privacy, or if perhaps for some of you you're just kind of used to it. Mm-hmm. 
Just so that everyone can hear that, the comment was at uh, Menards that there was re uh, voice recording and video recording of everything you say at the counter or just anywhere in the store? At the service desk for a record for them. Okay, but so then I want to ask the panel, so what? I mean, I shouldn't speed, right? I mean, who cares? If I go to Applebee's, great, you know. <laughs> what, I want to bring this back to the book. I mean, why, what does the book teach us about this? And so? <laughs> I think that there's a pretty strong correlation between what the government knows and what the government does. And clearly the government's been doing a lot more. The, the way that kind of we measure how much economic activity occurs in a society is through the gross domestic product. And the way that we measure how much the government does, well, there's not a perfect way, but it's through government expenditures. And government expenditures relative to the gross domestic product has been increasing dramatically over time. Uh, I think of a, something that Daniel Patrick Moynihan said maybe five or six years ago where he called... And who is he? He's a former senator, I believe. He died recently. Very smart man. He called an act that Congress did Fabian, as in a sense of Fabian socialism. Fabian socialism was something where things would take place over time slowly. And I think that ever since about the New Deal, you've seen the, the role of the government increase and increase and increase to a point that, you know, if it continues this way, the government will be doing so much more than it does now for us today. And the question is, is for everything that the government does for us, are we doing anything for ourselves anymore? And clearly it's a marginal thing. It's not happening that we're either a totalitarian state or, you know, anarchy where um, cats and dogs are living together in harmony and cows are eating people. But, you know, it's, it's something that for each thing that we do, it's something that the government doesn't do for us, and it's that much of a limiting thing that the government has control over us. Oh, Jason, you've just given me one more thing to worry about tonight, the <laughs> prospect of being eaten by a cow. So, as if I didn't already have enough irrational fears, let's just add that on to the party. Uh, but I think your point's well taken. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, I mean, what is big government and what is small government? Uh, Typically, the conservative movement in this country is associated with small government, less government, but yet apparently that doesn't include wiretapping and things of that nature. Uh, you know, that type of government control is apparently all right. Um, I want to come back to the point of um, businesses and what they know about us, cameras inside Menards, as the case may be. Um, obviously, we know with in increasing regularity, and this is just due to the technological genie being out of the bottle, when we go out in public, uh, I think whether it should be this way or not, we have to understand that we, we don't have the expectation of privacy that our parents had or that our grandparents had. Just because the technology is there, it's available, it's going to be used. Uh, what I think is sort of an interesting uh, flip side of this is the way that we sort of uh, make it easier for Big Brother to spy on us. Uh, I was just having a conversation uh, in one of my classes just last week about employers who, when a young person comes in to apply for a job, they will go put that person's name into MySpace and try to find their MySpace page. And then they will look around that MySpace page for that person's um, personal thoughts and feelings and any multimedia, any pictures, any videos that are on there of that person possibly engaging in an illegal act. 
and they will take that into consideration during the hiring process. And I think a lot of these young people, particularly in this era today where we're so open to sharing things with our friends and, and young people who may be, and I don't mean to put this on young people, but let's face it, this is the most technologically savvy generation that we've ever had to this point. They're sharing information that they think is being shared with friends and, and, and I started to say relatives, but God forbid, relatives probably, but with friends, and they're not realizing this information is out there. And we put it out there ourselves. And so when somebody comes along uh, from a business and they, they check and they check up on somebody to find out who is this individual that I'm hiring, who is this that I'm going to be entrusting a paycheck in and, and possibly benefits, et cetera, uh, has that person's privacy been violated or have they gone a long way toward violating their own privacy by putting that information out there? And I, I had one student who said, I just think that that's wrong. I don't think they should have the right to look at something that I've done in my own private time, in my own house, and, and make a judgment about hiring me or not. And I said, well, the flip side is if I'm an employer uh, and that information's out there, maybe, yes, it's a little creepy to think that you know the people down at Menards or Walmart or wherever are scoping out your web page, uh, but they have the right to do that. Right. It's public information once it goes out on the Internet. And how it relates to novel, I think, is the lack of of individuality in the novel and that's a problem because we take individual individuality away from people then their their souls sort of wither and I think that's what happens to Winston in this but here we are having people be individuals and have really cool MySpace pages but that's being held against them at the same time so it's almost like again it's this um, dual edged problem that is with this novel it has been taken um, by conservatives and by liberals alike and manipulated to fit whatever purpose it it can be um, shoved into. And I think Orwell himself would be very upset by that because he was a journalist. He tried very, very hard to bring things as clearly and as concisely and with as little fanfare um, as he could. And he actually wrote an essay called Politics in the English Language, which is based um, in part on the language of Newspeak that is in 1984. And he tries to kind of show how language is so important and what kind of words we choose and what we do with them. And he says not so much that we want to not express ourselves individually, but we want to express ourselves clearly. And... Um, it is sort of, it's, it's empowering at one, one level to kind of think I can create these spaces for myself. And my, you know, I was thinking about that after you mentioned it the other day. I have a little MySpace account where I put my holiday pictures on there. And I went through and made sure everything looked okay after Ricky mentioned that the other day in the, in the meeting we had before the panel. Because I thought, wow, I didn't even think about that. I emailed that to my granny, you know, so I didn't even think about it. So it is something that is out there, but it is true. Let's let's yeah, shift to your big brother. <laughs> We've uh, did you want to? Can I can I just? Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I was just going to say that, and I got to be honest with you guys here. I I know that I go through my life and my conversations are recorded and my moves are recorded. Apparently, it doesn't bother me enough to do anything about it, though. I, I got to be. I mean, because I, I think every once in a while I think to myself, God, that's scary. You know, that's not really good that they know what I'm doing. They. The who is they? Who is they? Yeah, I who is they? Whether it's, you know, the government wiretapping my conversations, and maybe it's because I think it, it, you know, somewhere inside me that I guess I'm an honest citizen. I don't really do anything wrong, so what do I care? If, I guess I just don't care enough to, to try to put an end to it. I'm well, saying Winston, it. I'm being honest. Winston was an honest citizen. So. And am I the only person that's troubled by this technology that allows... Um, Jewel Osco to identify you with your fingerprint. Um, yeah, when I was in graduate school, they they had what they called the smart card, 
that we used uh, as, as teaching assistants to gain entry into buildings after hours. And they eventually made the card so good that you didn't even have to swipe it anymore. If you walked by the sensor, it could be inside your purse, inside your wallet, it would still trip the door. And, you know, obviously technology is like anything else in life. It's going to be used for the purposes of those that are using it. So it becomes this technological, uh, if you want to see it in this way, it becomes a technological uh, cat and mouse game of different people trying to use the technology for their own purposes. So it creates unique challenges. And I think the, the thing that's really interesting about this book that makes 1984 more relevant today than ever is that we have that technological capacity today that we didn't have uh, at the time that Orwell wrote the book. But before we dive too far into the technology, which I want to get to uh, in a few minutes, uh, I want to go back and talk a little bit about some issues that Carrie brought up with uh, the individual and talk about how the individual is represented in this book. And to do that, I want to read um, one page, so bear with me. It's a short passage that I think brings up some of the points uh, that Orwell has, to, has to, uh, to say to us. As a quick setup, this is toward the end of the novel. Um, our main character, Winston, has been captured by the thought police and is sitting in a cell. Um, his fate is unknown to him, what lies ahead, which will be torture. If you want to read the book and get some good torture scenes, that's kind of interesting. Um, he runs into, coincidentally, one of his neighbors named Parsons. And uh, this neighbor is, is confessing to him that he's in here because of a, of a thought crime. He had, a, he had committed a thought crime against Big Brother. And he's concerned, and he, and he says, speaking of, of Big Brother and the government, um, they'll know my record, won't they? You know what kind of chap I was. Not a bad chap in my way. Not brainy, of course, but keen. I tried to do my best for the party, didn't I? I'll get off with five years, don't you think? Or even ten years. A chap like me could make, myself, make himself pretty useful in a labor camp. They wouldn't shoot me for going off the rails just once. Well, are you guilty, said Winston. Of course I'm guilty, cried Parsons, with a servile glance at the telescreen. Don't you think the party would arrest an innocent man? Or you don't think the party would arrest an innocent man, do you? His frog-like face grew calmer and even took on a slightly sanctimonious expression. Thought crime is a dreadful thing, old man, he said. It's insidious. It can get a hold of you without your ever knowing it. Do you know how it got hold of me? In my sleep. Yes, that's a fact. There I was. Working away, trying to do my bit, never knew I had bad stuff in my mind at all. And then I started talking in my sleep. Do you know what they heard me saying? He sank his voice like someone who is obliged for medical reasons to utter an obscenity. Down with Big Brother. Yes, I said that. Said it over and over again, it seems. Between you and me, old man, I'm glad they got me before it went any further. Do you know what I'm, what I'm going to say to them when I go up before the tribunal? I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for saving me before it was too late. Who denounced you, said Winston. It was my little daughter, said Parsons, with a sort of doleful pride. She listened at the keyhole, heard what I was saying, and nipped off to the patrols the next day. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? I don't bear her any grudge for it. In fact, I'm proud of her. It shows I brought her up in the right spirit. So, the individual. The individual. Um... Am I interrupting? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, historically in the, in the United States, we've always put a great sense of value on the individual. Is this on? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> the, there's the whole idea of the, the, the myth of the independent farmer always kind of subsiding on his own, living on his own, working on his own. Um, and yet over the years, 
probably starting with um, the progressive era of the early 1900s when you start to see government regulation of the meat industry and the food industry because people were grossed out because there was absolutely no oversight whatsoever of the food that they ate. Uh, moving on to the 1930s and the Depression, when now we put a safety net a retirement system in with Social Security. Uh, moving on to, to more to today's era, the Great Society of the 60s, I'm forgetting leaving that one out, and into today's era where you've got Hurricane Katrina and immediately people are saying, where was the government? Why aren't they here? Why aren't they doing what they're supposed to do? So our individual perspective of the government has certainly changed over the years. We expect the government to intervene. Now, to, to bring it back to 1984, there's an example of Winston where he is, um, there's a, a time of the day where they're supposed to exercise and he's being told to do his exercises and he's doing his exercises and the, the, the voice on the screen says, you're not, work harder, you need to touch your toes, work harder, directly to him. So his individuality has totally been compromised. He's being told when to exercise and how long to exercise. And yet I think even uh, we as Americans, to a certain degree, we want our individuality, and yet at the same time, we want and we expect the government to basically intervene and do things for us, as, as Jason talked about before. So it's kind of a... Well, and to add on to that, I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you agree with the city of Chicago telling us what we can eat in restaurants? How many of you agree with that? And yet they are. Have you heard about that in the news lately? I mean, you know, they're... they're telling us what we're allowed to eat and, it, and what restaurants are allowed to serve. Shouldn't we make that choice as individuals or do we have to have somebody tell us? The comment from the audience was about seatbelts, just that there's uh, checkpoints on seatbelts. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. If you want to go through the windshield, you should have the right to do it. And I'm not saying that's a wise decision, but it should be your choice. Because it, unless I'm mistaken, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe we have a helmet law for motorcycles in this state. We don't? I don't believe we do. Yeah, you have to wear sunglasses so you look extra cool on the motorcycle. So, but, but honestly, I mean, what is the state's concern and whether or not I'm wearing a seatbelt? I have two small daughters. I understand the state's concern that I behave responsibly with regard to them and that they are strapped in. So what's the difference? You have two small daughters. If you wanted to send them to work at eight years old, why do we have laws against that? Come on. You need some money. Troy, I'm not sure that I can argue with you on that point. <laughs> There's a question over here. Seat belts on school buses, yeah, that's a good one. That's why they drive 10 miles an hour. Cause they <laughs> All right, let's, let's bring it back to the book, the individual. I, mean, I think some of the answers, right, are here in the, the, the book hits on it. Like, what does it mean to be an individual in 1984? When Winston picks up the pen, he is doing an individual act, an act that no one else can do. And explain that a little bit, uh, the pen in what context? Or he keeps a diary. He bought a diary from an old junk shop, um, and he brought it home. And within the confines of his apartment, he can sit, this is our telescreen, for example, he can sit next to it in a very, very small area that used to be for bookshelves, he says, um, and pull out the diary. And as soon as that pen 
touched that piece of paper, he, he started down the road of thought crime. He even admits it. He says, I am already dead. What's the, what's the significance of a thought crime? What, like the example I read from Parsons, what is a thought crime? Well, it's doing um, what in Newspeak would be called own life having a life outside of the party, having a desire outside of what was already set for you um, as you go through um, your uh, particular lives. It doesn't apply to the upper party members, by the way, no, just, just those. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Explain old speak, too, because I don't think people... Oh, well, the old speak is actually standard English, circa 1948. Um, new speak is now what they are doing in the novel, the destruction of words. Every year they come out with a new dictionary to destroy more words, and one character in the novel says it's beautiful. It's beautiful to destroy these words. This is what I mean. I could talk about this for like a day and a half because that's what I did my work on. Um, but it is something important, I think, that when we think about linguistics and we think about what words we use to describe ourselves or describe our events, um, it's really, really important when you start putting it. There's a um, sociological um, theory that I used in my in my defense was it's called the Sapir Whorf hypothesis um, about how words create reality in different contexts and um, it is interesting how how Winston um, does that and actually there's one thing that Orwell wrote in one of his essays that I want to show you um, I don't know if you noticed the the PowerPoint that was playing beforehand there's all different kind of quotes about patriotism um, liberty truth vision future all these different kinds of concepts um, Orwell wrote in this article um, let's see the words democracy socialism freedom patriotic realistic justice have each of them several different meanings which cannot be reconciled with one another in the case of a word like democracy not only is there no agreed definition but the attempt to make one is resisted from all sides it is almost universally felt that when we can call a country democ democratic, we are praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime that it is democracy and fear that they might have to stop using the word if they were tied down to any one meaning. So this idea of not being able to define um, your government is a problem. And it's a problem in the novel, and it's a problem, I think, in probably modern-day society, depending on how you, how you present this. Sorry. Sorry, wait. Okay. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> well, in talking about the individual, Troy had asked us um, before what was the most important thing, things to me about the book. I've got to be honest. I had a hard time relating to this book. Frankly, I found all the characters annoying. I found the actions that they took aggravating. I wanted to punch half of them most of the time. Um, I found Winston really annoying. I found that, that he, just, I, he was too whiny. and just, I, I, just, I, didn't, I did not like him. didn't like the girl. didn't like anybody. Um, <laughs> Uh, there, I said it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm being honest with my feelings. So, yeah, I guess I, I think as Americans, it's really hard for us to talk about the idea of giving up individuality because we prize it so much here. Whereas, and I'll go back to my Russia example, there's no word in the Russian language for privacy. There's no focus on the individual. In countries like Japan, there's no focus on the individual. It's all about what's good for the society as a whole. So if you're working for a Japanese car manufacturer, you are expected to, you know, if you have to put in longer hours, perhaps with not even, even an advance or um, uh, extra pay, you pretty much do it because you want the company to do well. You will sacrifice your own interests in favor of the company's interests. And that's a very foreign idea to us as Americans. We're used to, you know, it's, we're in the me, 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 me culture. Well, so I think maybe that's why, though, Mary, is it true? Is it true that we are we don't conform? 
that we that, don't conform? I mean, I think well, we, I think we, we act like we don't, but we do. We, we do, absolutely. Go to the mall. Come on. That's all yeah, about conformity. Um, yeah. What we wear and what we say and what we do is all sort of related back. What, what group do I want to be in? Yeah. What subculture am I looking to be a part of? And I think that's essentially there's a problem. That's true. Even nonconformity is a form of conformity sometimes. Well, and I think that it's putting on my math hat for a second. It's, it's not really a Boolean thing. I think that we could all agree Boolean meaning it's a yes or no kind of thing. I think that there's a big difference between going to the mall and dressing like everybody and getting sent to a gulag for 50 years for, for saying something against Stalin. Yeah. There's, and that's part of what I think is important about this, is that the difference between whatever you want to define your terms as being diametric opposite sorts of things, individualism and collectivism, is the problem with collectivism lay in that there is no real way to define what's best for all people. Certain people like certain things, other people like other things, and as soon as, and we all have to accept some sort of collectivist standpoints, for example, much as, you know, I would like to, you know, um, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, and, <laughs> but, you know, much as I would like to kill a couple of people, you know, the rest of you have decided that there's laws that you should put against me so that I can't do it. But we've decided that collectively that that's a bad thing. <laughs> so there's all a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I think that the further away you stray from individualism, the, the greater this problem of the interpersonal metric of value is, is that maybe for some people a sort of Stalinist Soviet Union would be a great place where thoughts are decided, where production is decided. And I think that production that is creating things and thinking things for people, there's a really strong correlation there. Well, but let's, but okay, if, if you're Stalin, Stalinism is a great thing, right? <laughs> and sure. We have, a, we have a panel here of fairly educated, middle class, I mean, white people to be exact, right? So, I mean, we're not, we're not, uh, oppressed in, in a lot of ways. So maybe us sitting up here saying, ah, we have all this individual freedom, we're so great. I mean, does everyone in our society think that? Here in Lane. What is a thought crime, right? Where you're even just thinking it well, is it's illegal. Desire. It's desire in Why this do novel. We thought yeah. crime is desire in this novel. Desire for something different. Desire for... Um, Lust, desire for sex is all considered into thought crime, and thought criminals will do these things because it's against the norm of this party. And um, Troy asked me to kind of speak a little bit on the, on the love subplot in this novel, and there is a huge one. And my women in literature class, uh, some of you are still here, um, there's this female character in this novel who seduces, for lack of a better word, um, Winston, and it essentially is the reason that he ends up in the Ministry of Love in the place where there is no darkness um, because it's always light. So you have these images of like the sort of um, torture chambers that have been described to us on our television screens recently. Um, but also um, this love, desire for love and desire outside of marriage is a big problem in this book. And it's showing he shows his individuality when he consents to this sexual relationship. And, you know, I did a little research on this and found that this character of Julia was um, he wrote 
it in response to his second wife um, and his feelings about her to a degree. I'm not a biographical critic in any stretch, but to a degree you can see how he did that, and there is some evidence to back it up. Um, but also he said that she was a Catholic um, schoolgirl that when in school was not allowed to even see herself naked. Um, it was repressed sexuality in this school environment, and um, he kind of took that and twisted it into his novel of their repression of sexuality and, and in fact, individual expression of love um, because love was now the enemy um, of the party. So that also falls under individualism. I think also you have a, an element here that bears mentioning that for, for any of these forms of uh, uh, mind control, if you want to call it that, or at least constrictions upon individuality. For these things to work, we have to buy into it as a, as a population. We have to police each other. Uh, it's group think. Uh, there was a baseball player, still is a baseball player, but after, uh, after 9-11, I think actually after the, the Iraq war started, there's a baseball player named Carlos Delgado, and he staged sort of a one-man silent protest. He stopped standing to observe the national anthem before Major League Baseball games. And this wasn't anything that he broadcast to the general public. It was just a private protest that, that he was undertaking where he stayed in the dugout. He didn't go out with his teammates to stand and observe the, the anthem. And this was eventually reported in the newspapers, and it became a big item for a while. And he was getting booed. Wherever he would go on the road, when the, his team would come to town, uh, the fans would boo him. And it's a form of uh, sort of shaming that's going on here, saying, we don't like the fact that you're coloring outside the lines. He has the right, I think all of us would agree as an individual, he has the right to do that. He wasn't harming anyone, but yet it offended people and, and their sense of what a person should and should not do. And so I think we, we need to remember that for a lot of these things to work, we have to buy into it. You get the large population to buy into it, and then they will police each other. Well, that's what happens in the novel, um, essentially, and also with the with the other group. There is another group that is not in the party in this novel, and they are just everyday folks living their lives, going to the pub, all these kinds kinds of things. And Winston stumbles upon them, and he actually thinks about their lives and wonders about their lives and how they could actually rise up against the party and overtake it. But they never do because they are very much um, into their own stuff. Okay, they're fighting over saucepans and things like that, and they're reading newspapers about celebrities and different things. There's a whole section in the book about they write these certain sorts of magazines for this group of people to keep them busy. And I think it's a very interesting thing. It's a very Marxist interpretation of this novel, but you keep the masses busy. They're not, they're not thinking about what's going on above them. And today we call that people. Right. And us weekly. And, and in touch. That's right. <laughs> and we have them in the library over. Um, um, to, let's, um, while we're talking about those kind of things, let's talk about knowledge and, um, and education. How is it represented in the book? Well, Goldstein wrote a book, and he's the enemy of the party, but he used to be in the party, but now he's the enemy. Um, and he wrote a book, and they don't even know the title of the book. It's just called The Book. And Winston is given this book toward the end of the novel, and um, it pretty much outlines a lot of different things, and that is sort of like the seed of knowledge he's been given, but it's, you know, with a price. I think the root of all knowledge is sentience, and I'm not sure that most of the people that are living in this world, not this world, in the world of the book, are truly sentient. I'm not sure they're self-aware. And so 
knowledge must come from the individual. Can you elaborate on that more? Well, um, even kind of going with the, the old Descartes thing, if you think, therefore you are. So if you not are, you know, A, therefore B, not B, therefore not A. Sorry, putting on the math hat again. If you not are, then you don't think. So you have people that refuse to think, and then you question their existence. Right. If, I mean, what, what is the definition of a human being? Is it someone that's flesh and blood with a heart? and, Or is it someone that thinks? Is it someone that's sentient? Is it someone that's self-aware of their own existence? Well, and one, one thing on that is, in the book, they try to... They don't want you to be an individual. They don't want you to think. And I don't think a lot of the people know that they're being controlled. Um, there's a perfect line, actually, mathematical. Um, in the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. That's actually an old Stalinist thing, too. During the first five-year plan, I believe, Stalin said that they had a five-year plan for production goals, and they met it in four and a lot of the Americans that went over, a lot of them actually helped with the industrial process, saw these little Russian school kids walking around barking out, five and four, five and four, five and four. So they thought that they were redefining five as four. Can, uh, can we go back to the technology issue? Technology is all over this book, even though it was written in the 40s. Technology brings Big Brother into... Uh, the individual's life and uh, I want to talk a little bit about what that does to the individual and then bring that to us today. Well, I think that we're always focusing on the negative with it. I think there are a lot of positives with it. I what, mean, what's the negative first for those that haven't read the book? Well, the negative is that, that you're constantly like the telescreen. You're constantly being controlled. You're constantly being monitored. Everything that you do and, and say is recorded. Um, but there are some, some, I don't know if I would necessarily attribute some positive things to it in this book, but I think in our lives today, like we were talking in our discussion before about iPods and different things, a lot of those things are, are universal things that are bringing the world closer together. So technology can be can be good things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, there are some de some definite positives about it. I like the fact that I can be in Russia and check my online bank and see what, what how much money I've got in my account and, and make transactions and pay bills online. I like that stuff. Those are conveniences that I've gotten used to, and I don't want to get rid of them. And so because I monitor them all the time, I figure, you know, I, I know what money I have. Well, sometimes I know what money I have in my account, not all the time. It's dwindling. Um, but, uh, I, you know, those are some things that I've gotten used to as, as a consumer that I don't want to give up. And I know people are worried about Big Brother, and my mom's more old school. She always pays her bills, writes the check, and mails them snail mail. And I think, to heck with that. I want to pay my bill the same day and be done with it. And I don't, I don't want to have to worry about tracking it. So... I don't know. For me, I don't always see it as, an, as a negative thing. I don't feel like I'm really giving anything up well, Mary, by doing it. Mary, do you think that, I mean, do you think there's the danger, you know, not having this sort of hard copy written trail that we can go back to, that it can be manipulated and distorted easier? I think that's essentially what is at the core of this novel. It's not really the technology. You've got you've to imagine, some of you who are, or who are younger, you don't understand that when this novel came out, it was considered science fiction. No one realized that we would have computers like this, that we would have iPods, that we would have all these devices that we have now. Computers used to be as big as this table. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, watch old Columbo episodes when they have the computers. You see them. Um, it is something to think about. So it was considered science fiction. It's no longer, if you look at the top of these books, they're just calling it a classic. But before, it was shelved in science fiction um, because of the technology aspect of it. But I don't really think technology is essentially what the problem is and the, and the motive is in this book. It's sort of the, the manipulation of things, and technology in the book allows it. These memory holes, they call it, which is a chute that paper goes in and, and then is engulfed in flames. So then it no longer exists. It never existed, and it can never come back. The only thing is left is what they have created now. And so um, there's one little quote here about, about things that are being falsified. Written records were falsified. When that happened, the claim of the party had to be improved. The conditions of human life had to be accepted because there did not exist and never again could exist any standard against it could be tested because it's gone. And I think the, only, the danger, I love online banking. I love my iPod. Um, I love my computer. I love my Sims. I love all those things. But I, my problem is that if there is no, if I go to CNN.com and they can change it and then repost the story, how will I know they did that? Who's going to tell me they changed something? But the, 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 I'm sorry, there was manipulation of, of, of press and those kinds of things before. William Randolph Hearst created a war. He and, and um, Joseph Pulitzer, between the two of them, uh, created the Spanish-American War that we all bought in that has that echoes quite similar, similarly to the Iraq War of today. So. I, I guess I just but it was harder, really, wasn't it? it? Took longer. Now it's instant. Maybe, maybe that's but true. I think, I, I think it'll be done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you've ever seen the movie Wag the Dog, yeah. I would recommend that. Creates an entire war. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're on to wars and government, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, patriotism as it's viewed by the novel and uh, how that impacts us today. <laughs> I have a, a hard time defining patriotism just because so often I believe that patriotism and nationalism are treated as though they're the same thing. In my mind, they're very different things. If I was to define patriotism, I would define it as a loyalty or devotion to one's ideological system, whereas nationalism would be more towards loyalty or devotion to one's political boundaries or um, ethno-cultural distinctions or something like that. In that sense, clearly this is not an issue of patriotism, but of nationalism. Well, I have up here on the screen, this is a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary, um, every English major's very best friend. Um, this actually, oops, go back. Um, it says, actually, one of the definitions specifically for Americans, a person actively opposing enemy forces occupying his or her country, a member of resistance movement, a freedom fighter, originally used of those who opposed and fought the British in the American War of Independence. Patriot, as defined by them. I have a couple other quotes that went, went um, scrolling by as we were before we began, but it is interesting. Like Orwell said, you can't. It's hard to define these terms. It depends on what aisle, of what side of the aisle you're standing, or where your foot is. Um, some people say it's patriotic to stand up and speak um, what you feel is right, rather than sit down and you know at the national anthem. Um, Maybe we should be applauding someone making a stand for something he believes in, not booing him, um, depending on your definition of patriotism. Um, 
you know, what is anti-American then? You know, it, it begs that question and becomes the next question. You know, is it anti-American to speak up and to do what you feel is right and speak your mind? Or is it just toe the line to be American? Well, I find that definition interesting. It's, and, and I think it's easy to say that because we won. <laughs> we're patriots because we were able to define the history and write the history. Yeah, you want to chime in, Jim? So the winners define Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I get a newsletter from Valley Forge um, historical site out in Pennsylvania and they send something out. Yeah, I'm nerdy, I admit. I do get stuff from Valley Forge. It's interesting, I read it. Anyway, and it's enti- their newsletter is entitled Patriots or Traitors. That's how they call it because and it, it, we call ourselves Patriots because we won. We had an interesting discussion in my class at the very beginning, my international relations class and my world since 1945 class. Um, I used a clip about um, the recent incursion with Lebanon, with Hezbollah, um, and talking about what our definition is of, of a traitor and of terrorist and, and who defines it. And, you know, there's the old adage of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And it's really interesting, um, you know, most people had a pretty clear definition of how they viewed Hezbollah. And I said, well, it's interesting. When we start talking about the Irish Republican Army in Ireland, um, and their work to oppose the British, most Americans usually have a very different interpretation of that. They'll look at the IRA as, well, they weren't, you know, they're just rebels. They're not, they're not a terrorist organization, whereas the British government viewed them as, as a terrorist organization. So it is extremely, extremely subjective. I think I just totally put an end of the conversation right there. Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't think it is. I mean, I was in England recently, and um, there was actually an event um, I've been there a couple of times. The first time I was there, an IRA event was staged as I was walking by like a dopey tourist with my camera. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I saw all of this sort of fanfare and police and things. And it was before 9-11. I had no idea of what it would be like to kind of stand in a place where it was sort of dangerous. They were actually protesting in front of um, the prime minister's residence. And I didn't really perceive that there was, you know, any bombs and anything, but the police sure did. Mm -hmm. And the actions of the police um, were very, very, um, in my mind, repressive of their demonstration. I just figured, oh, it's just somebody demonstrating. Who cares whatever I'm going by? Um, But it was a different different experience when it's not in your own country and it's not in your own Mm -hmm. sort of um, way of thinking. Yeah, and and we need to be clear. I'm sorry, Jason. We need to be clear, too, that laws are made by people, and therefore they're very fallible. We've had a a history of a lot of bad laws through the years in this country, and we we still do. Uh, I think all of us can individually determine how we feel about different particular issues, but I don't think there's any of us that would sit here and say, I have 100% agreement that all the laws are just perfect. Let's not change any of them. Um, so these things are dynamic. They change over time, and, and what is accepted in one era is uh, looked uh, back upon in retrospect by another as being uh, very irrational sometimes. I just think that, too, I'd, I'd like to say that, as, as Ricky mentioned, that laws are man-made, so is history man-made. And I, I think that it's I, – I don't necessarily want to – say that history is objective because history cannot be objective. History is made up of individual pieces that we 
kind of take out from the chaos from our lives, and ultimately history must tell a story. It's impossible to tell history without telling some sort of story, whether that be the ultimate goal of the history or whether or not one can be deconstructed, like Derrida, from, from what you're ultimately saying. So ultimately, we're just kind of, you know, splitting hairs over what's the right story to tell, mm -hmm. and that's inherently a subjective thing as well. Well, what is truth then? You know, what is truth? My truth is different than, than anyone else's truth, and that goes back to that sort of school of, of um, deconstruction. Kierkegaard had the, the whole subjective truth versus objective truth, and I think it's good where subjective truth is kind of an emphasis on the how, like if one was to say God is love, is that true or is that not? Mm -hmm. Whereas objective truth would be the Civil War started in 1861. So I, I think that that's how Kierkegaard got around it, at least. And also, I think technologically speaking, we can integrate the media into this conversation because the media sets the climate for how we perceive issues. I know sometimes if you go, for instance, and visit the BBC website, you'll see the same issue being portrayed in a very different light than it is perhaps within our mainstream media. Mm -hmm. So is that Big Brother? Well, I was just going to say, Big Brother in 1984 defines history. Um, uh, Winston, one of his tasks when the war with, was it East Asia, sudden the war with the Oceania, the war with somebody, it's something different. And he creates a war hero. He writes about Captain Ogilvy. He makes up this guy, and he makes up these exploits that this guy did. And he it totally creates fiction, and people buy it. Um, I think we did similar things. I mean, we were looking for a hero with the Iraq War. Who was our hero with the Iraq War? Our heroine. Jessica Lynch. Jessica Lynch. You know, and, that's, and she was there. I, but I, didn't the story come out afterwards that it wasn't quite as, as originally it was written? And, and perhaps it was the media, the media's, the media, the media's need to create a, a hero or a heroine mm -hmm. that led them to, you know, quickly seize up the story and make a big deal out of it, which the Soviet, the Soviet did in World War II as well. And with this war, Pat Tillman, the football player, uh, we found that that story was sort of embellished and things were covered up, uh, even from his family. And so there's always that need. Again, wag the dog. That's my recommendation for a good rental. Even with that, with, you know, within that movie, the, uh, they find this, uh, you know, uh, mentally unstable uh, sociopath and they turn him into a hero just because they like the sound of his name. So to, let's start wrapping things up before we open up to questions. Um, so the point of our discussion does 1984 <laughs> still matter? I want to hear from our panel members quickly. It matters more now than... Does it matter and why? Because um, I think we are forced to, to debate these issues in these sort of arenas and in our classrooms and in our homes because the technology is now here. The technology has caught up with the fictionalization and it creates that need for us to discuss it. And also, I think it's an important book that we take a look at. I mean, like I said before, it's not an enjoyable read. It's some of there's some very horrific scenes in this novel, but I think it is important and I think um, this generation more than ever um, can relate to it based on our technology? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and why? I think a lot of people want Big Brother. You can't leave us hanging with that, Jason. I'm a guy. Big Brother tells you if you're wrong or right. And I think a lot of people are looking for that. I think in the complexities of life, which are becoming more complex when I, th I think that we're living in the sort of world that people are very willing to hand off 
the choices they make. What was that that Sartre said? We're condemned to be free. I think a lot of people view freedom as a condemnation rather than as the highest goal. Well, I would disagree with that. <laughs> um, Most people. I don't think everybody. Um, I, I think freedom is, well, we could get into a whole freedom discussion, but the whole, um, if you read the book, it's very negative, mm-hmm. uh, very um, disheartening. But I think it is worth discussion because we are experiencing a lot of these technological advances. But I also think that a lot of these technological advances can be taken in a very positive vein. Um, I brought this book by Ray Kurzweil. It's called Singularity is Near. It's not an easy read, but this is um, a wonderful book to uh, provoke thoughts on how we're going to use technology in the future. And anybody who's concerned, anybody who's here and listening, um, I would recommend that you at least look on the Internet and read a little bit about what this guy says. Here's a quote that Bill Gates um, gave about this book. It says, Ray Kurzweil is the best person I know at predicting the future of artificial intelligence. His intriguing new book envisions a future in which information technologies have advanced so far and fast that they enable humanity to transcend its biological limitations, transforming our lives in ways we can't yet imagine. So a lot of what uh, Ray Kurzweil is saying, he, he deals a lot with artificial intelligence, but in a positive vein, of we're limited in how much we can, how many computations we can do in our brain, how much we can interpret as biological beings, and integrating some of the advances that we have developed to um, enhance the world and the way we think and the way we operate and share information for the better is um, part of the topic of, of singularity. So I strongly recommend that if you're interested in another perspective. Well, I agree with, with Nancy. I, I, I find... Oh, you, do you want to do a question? Or? No, um, I was just going to say, I think uh, a point that I don't know if necessarily you missed, but I think with technology being looked at as a was for those in the back um, what is technology being used if it's brought in for one good purpose what is it, could it be used for how could it be abused for negative well I think it's a good a good point I just I was just going to say that I you kind of tie it ties into my closing point here and that is that I tend to have a lot of faith in humanity especially I believe that Americans we, we're the kind of people that we get to a certain point we'll swallow a lot of garbage well, I think we, def- we definitely reach our breaking point and we say enough's enough. And I think if people, I think that kind of stuff has a way of getting out. Negativity, whether it's, it means that technology is going to cause, let's say, something that there's a fa- something wrong with your car and it causes the brakes are, there's a faulty part in the brakes. That kind of information makes its way out into the world. And people find out and that gets people motivated and things change. So I tend to view, I, I don't really like this novel very much, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I tend to pick up Nancy's point that I think it's a negative novel, but I do think it's extremely relevant. Um, and I, I do think that, that um, we will get to a point, I, I have faith in us, we'll get to a point where we'll say, you know, you can cross that line, but not that line. We draw we'll that have line. to talk after. Yeah. <laughs>
I'd also like to take this time to say I like freedom. <laughs> and I know we all do. I think it was... Uh, Just so I'm not mystified. <laughs> Just so I'm not misunderestimated. <laughs> I think it was uh, I think it was the noted philosopher Chris Christopherson who said freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, Jason. Um, I, you know, is it still relevant? I think the answer is yes. I think it's going to be more relevant to some than others, and I think that kind of comes back to the whole self-awareness deal. If I understood you at all uh, correctly, which and that that's. I don't understand. That, <laughs> well, I meant that I meant that to be self-deprecating. Yeah. Uh, you're a smart man, but the, the the point here, you know, that I kind of want to make is that Andy Warhol said, "What well, we were going to have 15 minutes of fame one day. We're in the future. We'll get to the point where everybody will have their 15 minutes. I think we're already to the point where we're measuring it not in time, but in web hits." Um, you know, if you're familiar, I was just acquainted with a term the other day called ego surfing. Uh, claiming that people are interested in getting some sort of personal validation from their Internet activity. How many hits has my blog received? How many comments have been posted? Uh, uh, how many responses do I have on the uh, ACDC message board or whatever? Okay, because, we, because it means, hey, notice me. People are responding. I, I want to be a star in some form or fashion. And so I think that we don't have a problem with Big Brother to the extent that all of us, I think, maybe not everybody, because I don't think anything's absolute, but most of us would like to be noticed. And uh, we like the idea of being noticed in a positive way, and we figure being noticed in a negative way is somebody else's problem, because we're not the one that is breaking the law anyway. So if they catch my neighbor doing something that he ought not be doing, well, yay technology. Uh, the only thing the technology is going to do for me is I'm going to wind up on American Idol one day, or what have you. And, and of course, that's not realistic. But I think we're very short-sighted sometimes in the way that we see this technology in that perhaps by the time the technology has become a problem for us, personally, it's too late. All right. With that, let's open up the questions. You're in front of the question. I'm coming. Okay. <laughs> in regard to individuality, and I think maybe possibly I speak on behalf of others, I cherish my individuality. I enjoy it. I do not want to be controlled by any governing body. However, I want that cushion there for when I need the help. <laughs> and I think a lot of people might feel that way. Leave me alone. Let me live my life. I don't have to conform if I don't want to. But when I need you, I would like I to know you that there. you're there. Absolutely. And on the note of technology, did anybody happen to see um, the destructive um, means? It was a 2020 uh, special I think it was last week, maybe. They were talking about global warming, so on and so forth. And technology was brought up as one of the issues that could very well be destructive for us in our future because a lot of scientists are fearing that technology is eventually going to outsmart us who created it. Exactly what this book is saying, too. It, eventually, technology will outsmart us. But how that's used is where we have to think um, how, how are we going to use that technology when we get to that point? It's something that you can't really quite imagine right now. Unless you watch Star Trek. <laughs> okay. Watch Star Trek. Other other questions. Don't you think that uh, corporations and businesses can be much more oppressive to individuality? I mean, the government can't say that you can't be a racist. I mean, if I say I hate black people. 
that's not illegal. But if I go into a business and say it, they can fire me instantly. I mean, there's almost no business that would hire me if I went around saying it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that corporations are, we're just talking about this in international relations, have corporations, are they um, um, overtaking the state in terms of who has more power? When McDonald's wants to get rid of supersized products, they do. When McDonald's wants to introduce health products to people and and have them encourage them to eat more fruit, they do. When they want to clean up their meat industry, they do. Um, They move faster, definitely, than than, um, uh, governments do. And and I would definitely agree with you that they have more power because they haven't been perhaps around long enough to be defined the way that governments have been. We had a question back here. Did I see a hand over here? I just had a comment. I was reading in the Sunday South Town that, you know, when people donate their cell phones, Mm -hmm. that any personal information that they had stored on there, even if they deleted it, can be retrieved. So that's another way people can find out where you're doing. Oh, good Lord. Just Google your name, too, and find out where you live. (laughs) Yeah, I get a comment. We got a question up here. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that this book kind of reminds me of a book I read years ago called The Giver by Lois Lowry Mm -hmm. and um, about this boy who is given the gift of awareness where everybody else in his world they see in black and white everybody is grouped into some kind of societary groups and one thing I remember was there was a passage about twins and the one they actually had to something like humane euthanization of the smaller, weaker twin, and they destroyed this baby. And this boy is thinking to himself, "Why are they doing this? Why are they not giving this boy an equal chance to live as his brother, even though his newborn brother is bigger and stronger? I'm sure he could become something else too." And at the end of the book, where he takes, I believe it's another child, he begins to see in color, and. as he is given the gift of awareness he begins to see what's going on in his world and it just reminded me of this book one of the greatest fears I think as far as technology is that technology is not just something with machines and computers that break down and blue screens of death that you get from the computers that break down it's also about thought processes technology is in the social sciences for example and it's really given us some very negative things like eugenics the idea that certain genetic types were better than others and thus, you know, certain ones should be bred out. Um, Marxism, which we now know as a pretty horrible track record of building good economies, that was supposed to be scientific. Karl Marx was a, a man of science by his own thoughts. So I, I think very much that kind of that's what I was reading about more in the technology. It was more in the thought processes of that of technology. And it was a good book, too. I like that book. I think we will wrap it up there. I want to thank all of our panel members. Um, and let's give them a round of applause. I want to thank all of you for coming. I will remind you that next month, um, October 12th, we have an author coming. I uh, published a book called Technophobia. We talk about technology, science fiction, and the future of ourselves. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be great. 
And a final comment in response to Mary. Um, this is this is a great book. And the people, but the people inside are oppressed people that refuse to think and they refuse to act for themselves. So I want to thank the library and the bookstore for letting us be people who choose to think and go to events like this. So thanks I for coming. my right to not like the book, but I do encourage you all to read it. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.